novice to competency is different than what you would use to go from competency to mastery. I'm in the Olympic world where I want the bronze medalist to share data with the gold medalists and vice versa, because there's some things that the gold medalist did better than the bronze, but some things the bronze did better than the gold. So I want to even increase the efficiency of information exchange amongst the masters. Welcome to Pure Spectrum, where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners. Experience what it's like practicing medicine on the International Space Station, operating on an NFL Super Bowl quarterback, treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl. Ride along with a former Navy SEAL physician embedded with elite Delta Force commandos. Meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics, meditation, science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon Dr. Keith Mankin, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe as we explore medicine en route. All right, welcome back. You've no doubt heard this famous quote from science fiction writer William Gibson. Quote, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Unquote. What better way to describe technology and medicine? The runway for technological innovation and adoption is just a little longer in our world. After all, who else out there still uses pagers and fax machines? So where can we look for a sneak peek into our future? Well, how about sports? Motion tracking sensors, video analysis, performance modeling, biometrics, wearables, you know, money ball data analytics. This is all old stuff for coaches, trainers, scouts, and team managers who use these technologies every day. But what could we learn by putting this same technology to work in the operating room? To answer that question, we're thrilled to have Dr. Carla Pugh with us today. Dr. Pugh is a professor of general surgery and director of the Technology-Enabled Clinical Improvement Center at the Stanford University School of Medicine. She is one of the world's leading researchers in the use of sensors and simulation technology to assess and quantitatively define hands-on clinical skills. This is a fun and eye-opening episode on what's coming around the corner. With that said, let's get started. Dr. Pugh, Carla, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you today. Thank you so much for having me. It's amazing meeting the two of you. I look forward to our conversation. I'm sure you guys got a lot of great questions. We got tons of them. We're, we're excited. So we had uh, Dr. Lloyd Miner, your boss, the Dean of Stanford on maybe four months, five months ago. And there's just all sorts of cool things happening at Stanford, but he highlighted some of your work in your book and Keith and I have been talking about it. We just wanted to invite you on to, to explore it a little more in depth. Let's just start here, Carla. Before we get into haptic sensors and GPS in the OR and all this other cool stuff, <laughs> tell us what inspired your path. Because as I understand it, you're the at least the first surgeon in the country to have your PhD in education. Uh, tell us how you got to got to this path. I wasn't shooting for the Guinness Book of World Records on that one because I didn't even have the data to look it up. I, um, as one of my mentors uh, put it, he says. Dr. Pugh, you have a fire in your belly. And because of what you want to do is so unusual, you need traditional credentials for it. So I was explaining to him my passion, my dream around anatomy and how surgeons learn and what I wanted to do in terms of, of um, my research and my career and wanting to be a surgeon scientist and take time off from my residency to go get additional training. He's like, you have to get a PhD. Let's figure out what the PhD will be in um, that would support you, but you need to get a PhD. And it was interesting. We looked at computer science. We looked at technology because I was interested in the technology and uh, 
you know, 3D imaging and things like that. So we looked at so many different areas and most of it, you know, to get a PhD in some of the fundamental STEM majors, it was mostly programming and coding. Mm -hmm. And then we came upon education and it just, we're like, wow. I guess in a sense that is the end goal is information exchange. But you have to remember that, I mean, I, I did that. This was a long time ago. This was before AI was, had its second wind and, you know, in terms of popularity, data science wasn't even a cool term then. So we were really sort of just pounding the pavement, looking through what majors made sense in education. I'm like, there you go. It's information exchange, adult learning. And so we started interviewing people, found someone who spent their career looking at, you know, computers in the classroom, performance and technology. And we're like, okay, let's do it. That's, how, that's at least the bits of how it, the PhD in education came about. That's great. Do you have the sense that uh, people are looking at you and saying, hey, this makes total sense. We should all try or some of us should try to do this? Because what you're doing is so important. I mean, the education of surgeons and also the, the, uh, of doctors in general, and also the way doctors communicate with, with uh, everybody around them is so fundamental. But you're the first person who really has the codified uh, vernacular to really bring that out. Are more people being inspired by you, do you think? More people are being inspired as the word gets out and as I've had success um, obviously, it, it is definitely not traditional. It's an unbeaten path. And there is no, there's an MD, PhD path for basic science, but not for education. And so it, it, there's still not a, a well-paved path. Um, and so I think there's still a few people that are watching the movie, the Carla Pugh PhD movie, yeah. wanting to see how see the how story it comes out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but there definitely have been more who have other surgeons who have gotten PhDs in, in education. And so yeah. it's pretty exciting. Um, I, I'm not sure we have a, a quite a quorum yet in terms <laughs> of the percentage, but, but we're getting there. And, I, and people connect them to me and, and I speak to them on the phone and encourage them. And, you know, now there's Twitter. And so a lot more people can follow the, the story. So it's exciting. That's great. And let me stay off the rails for one more question, then we'll get back on track. Um, uh, does Stanford have uh, a teacher track for um, tenure and for professorship? Because some um, medical programs are looking at that. So you don't have to just be the, the produce all this clinical research that they're actually starting to reward the teaching aspects. Is that something that exists at Stanford or something that you would like to exist at Stanford? Sure. So there is a, a, a clinical educator track. Mm -hmm. um, and so little different than traditional tenure track on the research side of things, but there is specifically a, a clinical educator track um, at Stanford and our clinician educator. And there are a number of uh, clinicians who rise through the ranks um, from associate to full professor um, as instructors and teachers. And it is, it is valued um, from that perspective within the, the medical school and the university. Excellent. Thanks. So Carla, I was thinking back to in our podcast adventure here, I mean, Keith, several years ago, we had a guest pretty early on. His name's Gregory Lopez. He's an orthopedic surgeon up in Chicago. And not too far out of residency, he, when he was in residency, he created a surgical simulator 
out of parts from Home Depot. So he was looking at, you know, depth penetration of a bone and, you know, all sorts of things. And he, was, he just wanted more hands-on time that he wasn't getting in the lab. And he also played minor league baseball before he went into medicine. So, you know, if you we're actually we're going to talk about sports a lot today, I think, because there's sports, especially professional sports, there's so much uh, further ahead in this technology than medicine is. And they've learned a lot. And, um, and there's a lot of uh, parallels, I think. And one is, you think of surgery like game day, how a surgeon spends their time not on the field is different than an athlete does. And we're going to talk about practice and all the other, other things that, uh, that compare. But, Carlo, take us back to your residency. What, what did you expect coming in as far as training? And you mentioned before there were, you, there were some deficiencies and some things missing. What were they? And how did that kind of inspire your path to look at this a little deeper? Yes. Residency. I mean, first, it's amazing, right? I mean, it's a huge honor to be a surgeon. I love surgery. I just spent a week on call and I was so incredibly busy. And, you know, uh, everyone's like, oh my goodness, look at you, you're doing like 30 cases and you're up all night. And I'm like, and I still love it. I love what I do. It just is such a huge honor to be able to have that type of interaction with patient and disease my residency was every much that as well, you know, and it's different. I'm, I'm on the steep learning curve, learning the surgical anatomy and, and learning the clinical um, disease process and, and long-term outcomes of certain disease. What was very frustrating for me in my residency, um, the two that hit the highest mark in terms of frustration was access to information. Uh, now I will, I'm openly willing to date myself because it's a podcast. And I think that means that people can't see my face. Uh, I look really young, but yes, I did my residency before Google existed. Um, so you couldn't search online for an image of a surgical instrument. You couldn't search online for 3D volume rendered images of surgical anatomy. And um, I was limited to a two dimensional textbook and VH, I don't even remember the acronym. Was it VHS? VH1? VHS, yeah. VHS tapes. That's right. We could rent them in the library. Now we're dating everybody. They don't know what that oh is. Oh my goodness. What's a library, right? I mean, you know, where you go and rent, <laughs> physically go there to pick up something, to put in a machine to look at it on. I mean, that that was the level of access to information. So I was frustrated with that perspective, access to information and good information. And then I was frustrated with the level of feedback. Um, again, I played sports as well, and I'm just waiting for my coach to give me my stats in comparison to somebody else so that I know, okay, great. You know, this is a procedure with seven critical decisions. I did well on three and like these other four, I really need to take a deep dive and read and, you know, read more. But I didn't have that feedback. Um, and it's, it's really funny, just fast forwarding, um, been back at Stanford for two years. I did my PhD here uh, 20, 20 years ago. Um, and I remember just in a, a, one of our conferences asking the residents, I'm like, have you all ever watched your colleagues operate? And it was funny, I will say, one of the residents was like, no, we just assume each of us, we're the, we just assume we're the best. Good confidence. <laughs> no, I mean, and, and and there is this part, you know. Unfortunately, doctors, ironically, people don't understand that we actually have to have the same kind of confidence as an Olympic athlete to go in and face 
the dangers of a cancer or a bleeding organ, we have to have that confidence. But I would submit in medicine, we could do a little better, at least the athletes have that confidence added on top of data and metrics. Our confidence, the data and metrics are a little different. It's, it's at the end of uh, what we call our you know, patient outcome statistics. That's a far distance. You know, that's just looking at, you know, like how many Super Bowls someone won, but then not having any data right. about end of, you know, game statistics moment to moment. Um, so that's pretty much what we have. We have, <laughs> we have, you know, patient outcomes data. We don't have moment to moment data about individual surgeons to compare, you know, what we did and what we can improve on. And even though I personally know I'm the best surgeon on the face of earth, there's a small part of me that knows that, you know, maybe one step of one procedure I do, there may be one person out there somewhere that's just a little better than I am, <laughs> just a little. And I would love to know what it is so that I can continue to be better than them and beat them and everything else. It's not a competition. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't believe that. We surgeons don't believe that. So. <laughs> well, when did you start thinking in terms of, um, of, ways to to get that information on a on a daily or moment to moment basis when did that uh that um dream start coming to you you know um when i when i uh came to stanford after my residency um in that moment my vision for the phd and for you know over of surgery with new information exchange in that moment because I was so tortured by our textbooks and the process workflow of trying to get videos and information. I was really in that moment headed to the PhD thinking that I would provide 3D visual anatomy and change you know, the education from that perspective. One of the first classes that I took at Stanford was human computer interactions. And in that class is when I learned about sensor technology and I was blown away. I'm like, oh my goodness. Now I'm going to be able to add in touch behavior, sequencing, motor choreography from the movement to the video images. And I was just blown away. I mean, at that point, I'm like now, and originally I was shooting and fighting for this one data stream that was so needed. And then here come this new data stream that I had never thought of, heard of, dreamed of. And, and that was a cosmic evolution of excitement, running, persistence, trying to, you know, continue this world takeover of new surgical information. It was in that class in that moment when I learned about what was possible. Wow. And I think most of our listeners, I certainly don't know, what was the state of the art of the sensor technology at the time? Were they talking about, we can do this, or were they talking, we will be able to do this at some point? No. I mean, I literally, they're, they're, it's so funny to think about it. I mean, we took sensors out of electronics that were in play at that time. You wouldn't only really think about your world of sensors. So these were force sensing resistors, FSRs that were used in um, 
random technology like a mouse, like, you know, a single click, things mm -hmm. that we touch, buttons we push on an elevator. I mean, these were sensors that have been available to engineers for years. And here comes this crazy PhD surgeon who wants to put a sensor on a mannequin so that I could see how physicians touch or do procedures. And initially my colleagues in engineering were like, okay, nobody's gonna partner with you on that. That's kind of weird. And then after they saw it and I sort of explained, I'm like, are you kidding me? This is, we learn by watching someone touch something like in a clinic, watching just, you have, you mentioned your colleague, Greg Lopez, orthopedic surgeon, like reducing, reducing a fracture. I watched that, but I know even as a medical student, even though I didn't understand forces and know anything about sensors in that moment, I knew that they were grabbing it and touching it with some level of precision that I could possibly mimic, but I knew that I wouldn't get it right. 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 And I knew that even as a medical student, when I watched clinicians do anything with their hands, I was like, wow, you know, matrix movement haven't come out, but I was totally wanting to download that information to my fingertips because I knew I was missing it. It wasn't in the textbook. I could observe, I could mimic the steps, but I knew that I didn't have all the right moves to achieve what that person was achieving because I also saw the failures. I saw some people, I'm like, okay, this is probably not good to say on a podcast, but I mean, I'm watching a, you know, a resident do it. And then I watch a faculty do it and you see two completely different outcomes in terms of the patient's comfort, how quickly it happens. So I knew there were differences, even though I'm a student and I'm like not supposed to judge people who are more senior than me. I was totally doing visual judgment. But in that moment, when I was able to explain that to the computer scientists and engineers in my classroom, they're like, oh no, this is, you're right. Okay, we'll work with you. That totally makes sense. And they got it. When I gave them, I was like, it doesn't matter what specialty, what disease process, if you observe someone using their hands, someone who's really, really good, they look different than someone who's not. And I'm 100% sure that their force profile and their motion signals will be different. Amazing. So the, the technology at this point was nothing compared to what we have today. I mean, we, when we look at sports today, we have sensors embedded in football helmets to measure concussion risk. And the NBA has, from what I understand, the ability to know the player's position of every extremity and every spot during an entire game. They have sensors throughout the whole court. I was even reading today that the company that does this, they're also tracking all the players in, in Disney World right now because the entire NBA has been moved to Orlando because of COVID. And they know everything, even on and off the court. It's, it's unbelievable. But I think, Carly, this is going to be a challenge for us today because we're doing audio only. But there's a real visual component to this that even a layperson like me can see. And when you compare one graph to, of a top performer to, say, a, a resident or someone who isn't as good, there are visual differences in this. So let's try to paint a picture so people have a better idea what we're, we're talking about. If, if we think about the old Garmin GPSs that we used before we used our phones, they used to have this kind of uh, breadcrumb function where if you were driving to the store, it would show a little line along the map. You could follow it back. So that's one data point, right? So if we're thinking about it in the OR, you're watching the hand, it makes these little lines, and all of a sudden you start to see patterns based off of 
where the surgeon was, what they were doing, how long it took. Help us understand what, what that looks like and maybe take us through a, you know, a typical case and what, what, what you're putting on the surgeon. What, 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 where are the electrodes and probes and what are you doing? So I'm, I really, I'm a really, really good listener. I'm also a distracted listener because I think in pictures, um, there, that's a whole other part. I, I literally think in pictures. So everything you just said, I was standing in the OR and the first epiphany I had was to explain to the whole audience in podcast land that we are actually not using all of the sensors that I dream of using in the real OR yet because the technology still doesn't exist. So I am using off the shelf wired technology, again, taking sensors from other industries and using them in a simulated environment. I am dying to get into the OR. Oh, because I, I was looking at Stanford's of- website and I saw two of these graphs. So these are just sim- these are, these are surgeons. These are surgeons performing simulated procedures. Now, some of them are pretty realistic. We have them performing the procedure on pig guts with fake blood, the whole nine yards and right. simulated injuries. But we are not in the real operating room with a low profile motion tracking sensor that's sterile and goes underneath the gloves. And that's easy to put on. All right, let's take a step back then, because I also want to ask you about whether this is considered a medical device, the FDA, all that kind of stuff. I want to talk about that. But let's just take us back to the lab for a moment so we can picture what's happening. So not everyone listening knows what the Mayo stand is and the back table, but these are, let's just say this is your working environment. This is your office, right? There's the patient's table. The patient's right in front of you. Um, yeah. What, why, why, tracking using this, especially the, the spatial um, uh, tracking where the hands are. Tell us what we're actually seeing there and what this looks like when you graph it out. Okay. Yeah. So um, first I start with the team, right? There's this, the, the team, the patient's part of the team, but there's the the head surgeon, the most senior person in the room. They're either operating, you know, with, with an assistant or colleague, a student, a resident, a fellow, then your anesthesia team. And the main people around the table Yes, there's your mail stand with all of your instruments. Um, there's a back table. Well, there's a back table with all your instruments, and then there's a mail stand that's the scrub text prediction of the one instrument you're going to use um, most, more quickly, more frequently. Um, and and then uh, if I'm standing there and I've got my, you know, my EEG sensor across my forehead, low profile. I've got my low profile motion tracking sensors under my hand and also audio and then synchronized with video in the OR, whether it's coming from my glasses or from the laparoscope um, for a minimally invasive robotic or laparoscopic procedure. All that, that's the gear and the people. As soon as I move, if I'm wearing it, all of this data synchronized with video, you can see when I'm operating, and if I'm moving slowly, what we have learned is that that's actually the most important part of the operation because you're carefully putting that suture in or you're also getting visual information from the field. Uh, Something's moving, something's bleeding, something is inflamed or, and you are, what we've learned with the motion data, when you display it 
with respect to velocity. So we can um, use kind of like a spectrogram view of the motion plot and print it in a velocity um, code. So the dark blue areas are the areas where you're moving really slow. And then the yellow areas are where you're moving really fast. The yellow areas tend to be when I'm reaching back and forth from the mail stand, grabbing an instrument. There's no, the only one that may be slow is when I'm reaching for us, when I'm being handed a scalpel, because that's a dangerous instrument and you can hurt your colleagues. But otherwise, if I'm just reaching for some other blunt instrument, the velocity tends to be more quick. And then again, you can track how many times I reach for an instrument. You can track how many times I adjusted my assistant, <laughs> track what I'm doing in the abdomen when I'm suturing. There's a pattern to suturing, whether you're suturing you know, on the aorta or on the bowel, there is a reoccurring motion to suturing. There's a motion for applying a stapler. So it's just interesting in that in every operation, every maneuver subtask have a specific pattern that can be pulled out of the full motion signature. So Carla, I'm looking at two um, visual representations of this. These are two dimensional, but a lot of this would be three dimensional. Just hard to put that on a website, right? So what I'm seeing here, so if it, it's almost like a coordinate graph, that's a little different, but in the bottom left, we see hands near the Mayo stand. And then the patient is kind of in the middle of the graph, upper right, I'm not really sure what that is, but then the upper left, there's hands on a laparoscopic instrument. So just as a layperson trying to interpret this, when I see a lot of activity on the bottom performer, it's graph A versus the top performer in B, there's a lot of hand activity around the Mayo stand. And just knowing what I know from being in the OR all these years, that indicates to me that the surgeon's having to grab instruments too often themselves instead of having them handed, handed off. And that's an inefficiency. Is that one way to look at this? So you could just be reaching your hand out to the Mayo stand and someone handing you something, but, but the, 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 the part that you just explained that the lower performer did more, had more times to the mail stand, that's because they switch out their instruments. Right. I mean, we spend a lot, of, and so it's just, that's, a, that's actually a perfect teaching point from a feedback perspective, what I was looking for as a resident. So what I spend time explaining to my residents is that sometimes the anatomy is actually difficult. And you would do better and be more efficient and have less interruptions of your visual view of the anatomy if you learn how to use one instrument five ways. They tend to, in the beginning, when they're learning an instrument or in their first couple of years, they only use one instrument for one thing and then they're switching out. And that causes an inefficiency. Um, Verbally, I can tell them, I can tell you when once a resident has an instrument in their hand and even an experienced surgeon, the anatomy is just so amazing. You have an instrument in your hand, your ears go deaf. So you can't give, it's hard, really hard to give feedback real time to a resident who's watching anatomy and, you know, doing these, you know, cognitive haptic motor movements to get the surgery done. They can't hear you. But if I told them, like, you switch out your instruments 10 times more than one of your colleagues, forget comparing you to an attending or someone who's more experienced, then they would listen because that's the group they want to compete with, right? And, but I can't, I can't give them a count 
because I'm not going to remember that. I'm teaching, I'm doing an operation. So that's the feedback they won't get because I won't remember. I, I'm not counting in my head the number of times you reached out, but I just say, you do it a lot. But what does that mean? It's not good enough feedback. Surgeons, we want data. So if I showed them the graph that you're looking at, I'm like, and then you it could count it. You know, I could you get AI instead of my researchers looking at it and counting the lines. I can get a, you know, artificial intelligence to kind of map that out. The number of times you went back and forth, they could get a report at the end of the case. You reach back and forth to your Mayo stand 40 times in this operation. The master surgeons for this particular case are 18 at best and your colleagues are 30. So you're behind the rest of your colleagues. Talk about a motivator with real data and at what part in the operation and then I could synchronize that movement with the video and show them, that's feedback. That shortens the learning curve tremendously and that's what I'm really after. I mean, our training and the opportunities are great, but we can only train to a certain extent. I mean, these are adult learners who are ridiculously smart. Data would help us cross the finish line of shortening the learning curve. So it's a, a simple but real benchmark that you can use, which is what's lacking right now in the teaching process. You know, it's like, it's one thing to say, you know, you're, you just look like you're, you know, we used to teach the residents, what, what's all this? What, well, you can't see that, it's a podcast. What's this waving your hands around? But if, but if you actually have that to show them, you say, I didn't do that. We, we had one unfortunate resident who um, didn't have control or it wasn't his fault, but uh, he'd be operating with one hand, the other hand would be floating up in space. And uh, we had to like get him to focus. We had to give him an instrument to hold in that hand. That's a different story, but that would be interesting to sort of see with this type of, of uh, sensor, how he can compensate and what the extra in instrument, it may be an advantage because he had to have that second instrument. I don't know. No, but this is that perfect golf swing data analogy, right? right. I mean, this goes, to, this goes to situation awareness and awareness of your body while you're performing a task on the cognitive motor continuum, you're thinking you have a vision in your head of what you saw someone do and you're wanting to mimic that, but you can't see yourself in every movement at the same time to really know whether you're really mimicking that. And you definitely can't see the velocity and force. Right. You think you feel it. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, and if you have some level of confidence, he's like, yeah, I did it just like him. And actually I did it better. It's like, well, no, you didn't. But that's, that's the, 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 the verbal feedback we give in the operating room. Um, and that's just it. Human language actually isn't sufficient enough to give verbal feedback for the motor movements that are required of experts. Right. It's not sufficient. So what we tend to say, I mean, and there's some funny classic ones, it's like you said, we're like, um, move your hand this way. And then we were, we're touching, we spend a lot of time touching our residents, like here, change this way. Like you just grab their hand or sometimes I'll put my hand on their hand while they're in like, you can do it like this with this amount of force. Like, yes, a podcast isn't is helpful. Yeah. You can't see us using it, but that, that is. It's like, that just is, hit the, hit the ball into the hole. I mean, come on, you know, yeah, it's just right. a putt, right? right? It's so easy to yeah. do that. Right. No, I mean, it's, it, there's so many parts to it. And, and uh, the funniest thing that any attending ever said to me once in the middle of the operation, and I knew I was doing a major dissection and it was great. 
And he said, um, Dr. Pugh, is your left hand paralyzed? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm not helping myself. I'm like, thanks for not just digging in and taking the case from me and doing it, but giving me that all he had to say in that moment. And I realized, wow, like I was so into the anatomy and so into what I was doing with my right hand and trying to do the whole thing with my one hand. I didn't realize, yes, I could put my other hand and get a grasper and help myself. And in that moment, he refused to help me, which was perfect. And obviously I've been using my left hand and being ambidextrous ever since that statement, but he could have just helped me. And then I would have been slow to getting to a master surgeon because I would have you know, figured out later that I'm not assisting myself. Yeah. So there are so many questions that arise from this type of data and sort of looking at it. The, the question I would have is, can, um, I guess, what mechanism would a student or a resident use to, uh, if you showed them that data and said, oh, well now, oh, I realize that I have to consciously not reach to the Mayo stand or I have to use my left hand more. Do they still need to get um, some sort of instruction? Is this something you would need to do on a serial basis in order to show now you're improving, this is what it feels like, some sort of biofeedback type loop? Or, or reviewing think, films after the case maybe? Yeah, or do you think that this is something that they'll be able to comprehend and, and, and remember what they did and then, and then realize what the change is or by seeing other people's graphs? Yeah, so, so I'm, I partition this because the way this data can to go novice to competency is different than what you would use to go from competency to mastery. So I mm -hmm. live in two worlds. I actually want, I'm in the Olympic world where I want the bronze medalist to share data with the gold medalist and vice versa, because there's some things that the gold medalist did better than the bronze, but some things the bronze did better than the gold. So I want to even increase the efficiency of information exchange amongst the masters. Because once you do that, once you have their data and once you share that, then the database that you have for those who are trying to go from novice to competency is more rich. Mm -hmm because they'll know ahead of time. Like, I mean, we don't just exist here. I'm thinking about 10 years from now, the thing that I want to be able to do are five years or two years. You know, once I get to this level, this is other thing that I'm going to be planning for. So back to the, those who are going from, from novice to, to competency. Yes, we're still exploring all the different ways um, that the information can be used. One of the ways we've structured it is there's information that can be dispelled in the preoperative phase when, you know, you've been using this for several years, we've got a great, you know, database of all performances and you've got one case that you've done and you now have feedback on your data benchmark to everyone who's done this before. You focus on your colleagues because that's the first group you want to beat, right? It's not a competition. Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> and, and so, what we're learning when we look at the, the comparisons within a group for those who are trying to get to competency, most of it is instrument proficiency and them learning how to be efficient and purposeful with specific instruments. Mm -hmm. That's a very short phase. I think people are under their, their 
you know, misconception that it takes a long, long time to use instruments. But if you have the right feedback and the right patient, you know, right patients as an instructor, you can actually get someone to learn how to use the instruments, even within one or two cases. I did someone this week and purposely focused on a, one specific thing with an instrument throughout the case. And, and it was just amazing. It's so much fun to see that. After that, most of what happens in surgery is actually a decision and perception. Right. Is this the thing I want to cut? Is it fully dissected enough? Do I have enough information? Do I want to use this instrument to cut it or that instrument? Not how do I use the information? I know how to use the scissors now. You just cut, but right, should I be cutting that? And that's a bigger decision. Right. Um, so there's a huge cognitive part to surgery. It's not all technical. Um, the other category is actually rules, rule-based behavior. And what we're finding, a lot of people think that, oh, you need that thousand hours of training, you know, like with, with athletes and um, chess players and things like that to get to a level of, of mastery. There's some things you don't need a thousand hours of training. There's some things that's just rules. That type of suture doesn't hold well on these types of vessels. So... All you have to do is see a mistake once. And believe me, everybody wants to learn from everyone else's mistakes and not have to do them themselves. There's some things that you just don't want to see twice. You see it once and you're like, done. I will never do that again. Great. I'm trained in that thing. So it's actually, there's a larger portion of rule-based be, rule behaviors that we are now digitizing and turning into short video clips um, to share. Right now, all the master surgeons are walking around with it in their head and don't know that they need to tell people that, or they've tried to tell them, but when they explain it, all the surgeons explain it differently, but they're explaining the same concept. And the residents are like, okay, that kind of makes sense. So information exchange is a huge, huge issue. And a lot of it, again, is just is rule-based information. So we're looking not only to build a library of the actual motor movements and those uh, motion and force profiles, but then taking the key information from that and taking the video that was synchronized to that one data point to pull out those, those rule-based things that people can just learn from by looking um, at a short video clip, how they did it and how the master did it. Wow, okay, now I get it. Yeah, that's like, like a coach looking at game films they don't want to just keep watching the same game over and over and over again. They have other things to do, but if they can pinpoint the one spot where that, you know, um, that linebacker missed his block or something and just go over that and very quickly get to it by using, I, I assume, um, you know, coupling the data with the video, but also maybe text analysis, you know, what was being discussed in the case, it's a huge time saver. Right. And then, well, tell me, tell me about reviewing these these films because I, I I'm not a surgeon, but I remember playing football as a kid. One of the most revealing and sometimes humiliating things was to watch game films, you know, early in the week after after a game because, as they say, the, the eye in the sky doesn't lie. And then everybody, all your buddies, get to watch it with you and get to watch you make these mistakes. How do you do this in residency right now? How does this fit into the education program? So you can't give me that great analogy and then just want me to jump to the surgery speak. I'm sitting there in the game room with you, man. <laughs> like, I mean, because there's just so many parallels in that analogy that we're not able to do yet in surgery. Um, you think about 
everyone watching that video together of the thing that didn't go well. That's a team effort. And everybody in that room knows that if they help that person, that the team's going to win in the end, right? I mean, we're all, we are all together shooting for this end goal together. And we are all subject to being the weakest link or a weak link in some part. And we're going to partner together and you have accountability. Your person who's running with you after sitting there looking at that video and then they're with you on the field is like, nope, nope, I'm going to get you over here because this is, this is what we agreed on is going to make that outcome the best. In surgery, we need, and not even just surgery, it's all of healthcare. We totally need a revamping of our measurement culture in healthcare. I'm preaching to the choir for you all who are within healthcare, but those who are outside and don't see it, right now, the measurement culture in healthcare, although minimal measurements, what, what, what we do have, um, is not used to inspire team behavior. It's right. used to isolate and, yeah. I, I could go on a negative rant, but I'm not going to do it. That's my, my internal moral positive podcast uh, verbalization coming out of me. I can't go there, but it, 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 it is not. It's, it's old school coaching. I mean, we, it's we, old school. It's the, I mean, it's not even coaching because we don't get coaches. Right. That, even that framework doesn't exist. Right. Um, it's, it's not even. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's just old school measurement. And then you, you get your grade, your letter grade, and then it's, you're on your own. So it's very isolating. Um, anyway, we got work to do and I am totally looking to partner with anyone and everybody. And there are a lot of folks out there. I'm going to say a lot, like there's more than me. There's a number of people out there who are, who are really after this change in measurement culture. We really need it in healthcare. The, the, the difficulty, just the other, add the other layer, complete distraction to the question you asked me. The reason we don't have even the freedom to collect all this data, all this video right now is because our quality assurance and protection of this data is new and just beginning. Right. And what that means is many of the compliance officers and the attorneys that work in healthcare systems are like, oh my goodness, don't collect the data because it's discoverable. So that's, that's on our question list. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. the thing that, you know, our patients want the best physicians and we all want to be the best we can be. But at the same time, the very information that could help us get there is information that, that could be used against us in a malpractice suit. And so, so that, you don't that even use surgical videos uh, during live cases at Stanford, do you? Do we use surgical videos during live cases? We capture the video. A lot of people do capture the video. They make us look at it quickly and then throw it away. Okay. So you have to destroy it. Okay. Yeah. So that takes away a lot of opportunity to analyze it. Exactly. Yeah. So, so is the, I mean, I, I certainly understand that one of the questions I was going to ask is how do you, you know, going back to your point about the, 
the way um, our measurements have have um, pitted us against each other and us against lawyers and us against society. Uh, how are you going to protect against that? But I guess a better question is, are we at the point where simulation is such that we're going to get usable data? Um, I mean, obviously, we'll never get that feel of the patient is on the table and could be dying. You have to have that pressure that you never get that um, that uh, sink or swim lifeboat feel in, in a simulated thing. But um, they do pretty well in the airline industry. We always go back to the airline industry. And the folks I know who uh, are pilots say that you get into that flight simulator and that the plane's about to crash, you feel like the plane's about to crash. The lights are flashing, people are screaming. There's all this um, uh, concern. Are we at that point with medicine or, or do we have to have another technology catch up with or at least um, reach a point that you're going to be able to use your technology? Yeah, no, that is the, the there, there are a number of studies um, that have shown, at least when you're in that novice to competency training period, that simulation does facilitate that, you know, fixing those rule-based errors that we talked about and that, you know, instrument uh, proficiency. Mm -hmm. So we do know that training in a simulation does improve performance in the operating room. It's, there's, there's at least a hundred research papers of people have done really amazing randomized controlled trial studies with simulation and, and residents and training and showing that they're more efficient, they need less feedback, um, you know, less number of times to the Mayo stand and movement, less, you know, inefficient movement. So simulation can definitely help um, from the competency, from the novice to competency uh, arena. And that's where most of the studies have been done. Um, I think that there's more work to be done from competency to mastery the level of uh, complexity of the simulations that exist for sort of capturing those moment to moment, really super gold medalist level master surgeon moves. You're not gonna get them in a sim in, in right. order for it to be displayed in a sim that then you can share. Right. Um, but what we do know is that even with the one, you know, this, the, the, the study that we just did uh, at the uh, Moscone Center in San Francisco in 2019 for the American College of Surgeons, we had only practicing surgeons, uh, mostly practicing surgeons, 90% um, doing the pig gut surgery. And uh, the thing we added were the sensor data. And that does show we were able to pick out, we haven't published it yet, but we were able to, we were able to quantify a mastery strategy. Hmm. Not only for running the bowel and looking for the injuries, but also how you sew it and how you talk to your assistant. There's some very, very interesting choreography. The, the, there are things that master surgeons don't do that others do that make them inefficient. Um, and I, and I, it's just a, it's a perfect example that adding this data to a simulation scenario can definitely get us to that next level. And that's the, that is the difference though. You know, when you look at the flight simulators, they've always had data. Right. We, we've not had, we have not had data from, 
you know, mannequin trainers and even pig intestines where, you know, a real live animal that, that we may um, train on, it doesn't give us moment to moment data to be able to track what you did and, and also just having different scenarios. So the flight simulation industry is still, even though it started back, I believe in the 1940s, they're still far ahead in terms of being able to replicate, you know, the real terrain, the, all the, the controls and the visuals and then the data. Um, we're still, we still don't have uh, simulations that, that have that level of um, realism right. for, for at least complex surgery. Right. I wonder if the airlines have like an internal ranking system on these simulations, you know, like Sully Sullenberger's right up here, you know, and you're, a, you know, the 25th quartile or something. Yeah, It'd be interesting. I, I'm sure they do actually, but yeah. yeah. They're not going to release that to the public. No. Though. And that, that's probably the way it's going to have to be, Carl. I mean, if we ever get to that point, you said you've established a baseline for a master surgeon in certain specific areas. You know, we're kind of looking at a score, right? Eventually that's going to scare a lot of people, but um, and, and that's why I think it's important for surgeons to be involved in this data, right? Because if, if, you, if you're not, then it's, it's going to happen. I mean, the technology's there. The, 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 the medical device and instrument companies are looking to make smart tools and put that data there. And, and I think that, just as you said, if you think about it, it and it sounds odd, but I'm going to say it, not, what's a master surgeon? If it's a gold medalist, in our mind, just in terms of the analogy, you don't need a gold medalist for every appendectomy that comes in the door. You don't. And in fact, if it's an appendectomy on someone who has a congenital disorder and has all of these other medical problems, you want, you want the bronze medalist who has gold medalist communication skills. Mm-hmm. You want the bronze medalist on the technical side who has gold medalist communication skills, and that's going to be the best match for that family. So, so what we will have to do is manage the data, manage the information, and manage the marketing around it. You know, it may be in the end that every hospital really only needs, of their hundred surgeons, they need ten gold medalists, ten bronze and, you know, some silvers or something like that. I mean, or, you know, 40 bronze, 10 gold medalists, 40, you know, 50 bronze to match the disease, the case mix that comes to their hospital. Um, yeah, maybe the bronze knows there are bronze in this particular case, right? Not a bronze overall. So they hand something off to a gold, you know, maybe they're, but they don't know that right now. They, they have no way of measuring themselves against anybody else. Let me, and you just made me thoughtful. There's one surgeon who I spoke to and he said, the difference between a bronze and a gold many times in the sports is just time. The crazy thing about it is it's seconds. Yeah, sometimes milliseconds, yeah. It's yeah. milliseconds, right? So I spoke to this one surgeon, he's like, I have great outcomes. And I actually enjoy what I do and I love to do like dissect and make sure the anatomy is like, I'm a stickler in the OR. So that actually would make me slower, which just because I want to do it that way, I'm forever going to be a bronze medalist and I'm proud of it. I totally agree with that because I've seen surgeons who, especially in community hospitals, 
their favorite place to be is in the OR. So they're happy there. So they're talking, they're having fun, they're talking about the stock market, something else, you know. They're not in a hurry. And so, I mean, I think time has been shown to correlate with better outcomes in studies, but that doesn't mean that time's always that important, right, Carla? And we really don't have good time data. We have, that's the thing. We got, we have total OR time, but we don't have individual surgeon time. We don't have the time that you spent dissecting the aorta versus opening right. the abdomen. There's time and then there's time, time. That That's really meaningful time. Um, and so right, right now, uh, you know, I kind of, all the research that's been done up until now in terms of surgical outcomes um, was based on the data that we have. But once we have more detailed data, all that research is going to change. Right. We, you talked about the team approach and the fact that everybody has to be in on this. Um, and I guess the question is, what has been the reception? I presume you've talked to residents, trainees. They're probably excited about it. The established surgeons, maybe not so much. Have you talked to some of the, um, well, the, the um, uh, scrub techs or the surgical nurses who, who also have to be involved in this because their efficiency relates to the whole efficiency. And, you know, I know some really good surgeons who can't be master surgeons because the person doesn't know what instrument to give them and they have yeah. to reach for themselves. Um, and vice versa. I know some uh, great yeah. scrub techs who can't do their work because the surgeon doesn't know what, what they're asking for. Um, have you had, um, are you getting buy-in from the other groups? Are, are you asking for it at this point? Oh, I am asking for it. And people are surprised. Industry groups are surprised because they've been trying to do this for a long time, but I think they're, they're, they have the wrong branding, right? And they're mm -hmm. outsiders. So, so, so to have a surgeon and a surgical team, um, and, and my colleagues partner with me on this. When we, when we go, I can tell you, wow, my visions, my images that are popping up in my head are interrupting my thought flow. So I'll just get the images out. For the past 20 years, it doesn't matter what specialty, and it's not just surgery. I mean, I, again, I was putting centers on mannequins for physical exams and different all over the whole thing. Anytime I got a new mannequin and a faculty person who said, yes, can you measure this? I would put sensors and we would go do a mass data collection in the exhibit hall of major medical meeting. Every meeting that I've gone to, practicing clinicians have lined up by the hundred. Amazing. Wow. That's great. It, That's there's really a sweet spot in that people realize and know and have had the same experience that I had as a resident. People want feedback. I mean, we all know we're the best. But we want the computer to prove that we're the best. I'm teasing. I mean, they do. Like I'm just. But but people want feedback, and and so they line up by the hundreds. Anesthesiologists, family practitioners, OBGYNs, surge, breast surgeons, cardiothoracic surgeons. They they see that it's the future. Obviously, you know, it's the early adopters who are lining up and coming to the exhibit hall looking for something cool and interesting. The people who come on the first day that thing is really cool, go and bring other people the second and third day, like, yeah, they're gonna check do this that. Yeah. And they all just stand there like a crowd of people watching the data. They get it. At the same time, I openly admit there are others who come there to lecture me. They're like, oh, this is dangerous. And I was like, I wanna hear from them right. because it's important to hear the people who, are, who fear the data and already know that data can be mishandled, it can be misused. 
from my perspective on the far extreme, I'm looking at the history of it. It's not whether the data will be enabled, it's when it will be enabled and how. And so clinicians have to jump in the race now to drive it as opposed to having to react to it after someone else got it wrong because they don't understand what we, it will be somebody on the outside because what clinician has time? I have, I have taken my career, I'm 20% clinical and 80% tech-based research focused on this. Hmm. I, I'm happy to sacrifice my time in the OR because I think, because I believe in this and I know how important it is and I know how useful it will be. Yeah, you got me sold. Carl, <laughs> we're getting really close on time here. Do you have time for maybe a couple more questions? Then sure. you got to get going. Sure. So I'm trying to think about this. You've talked about all these barriers right now. So in some ways you're like Dr. Codman here, you know, you're telling people what is totally obvious later, you know, of course he was right, but yeah, uh, you know, there's people who are, oh no, we can't have a right no that's right. filming me. No way. Okay. So well, let's skip the regulatory issues. You're not an attorney neither are either one of us. Uh, that's going to take some, some, some deals to, to make that work, but just to, the time between full imp implementation of having embedded sensors on your gloves and knowing every movement of a surgeon's arm and hand and fingers, we're not quite there yet, certainly during a case, but there's a space between now and then. And I'm thinking about my Fitbit watch right now, right? It gives me a pretty good idea of how much I've been sleeping. It doesn't tell me about the quality of sleep. There's a lot of missing data there, but it's, it's yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, oh, that's the, um, the aura ring. The aura, that's right. I've, I've heard about that. Exactly. So it's all moving in that direction. Is, is there some in-between technology, you know, either spatial analysis with, with cameras, motion analysis, where you could have multiple cameras looking at it instead of having embedded sensors or something like a Fitbit watch where at least you kind of know where everybody is in the room to measure efficiency? You know, what, what could happen between now and then that's realistic and that you could correlate with some of your other data? So, oh. for example, one more thing, how many steps I take per day? That, that might correlate with my cardiovascular health, but that's a rough correlation. But it, it probably over average, you know, the more you walk and the more you exercise, the better you are. Is there some uh, something like that that you can see or something you're working on? Yeah, I think it, I love what you said. Just the wearable technologies that everyone's using that are publicly available, non-medical grade, it is allowing the conversation to happen and the thought process that, that, that streaming mm -hmm. continuous data it's going to change the way we do things in healthcare. Um, Stanford did the Apple Watch thing. We have the people wearing the watch for looking at arrhythmias. It's going to completely change all of what we thought we knew about cardiac health and totally. it completely changed the whole thing. So just to be clear, so I do have a startup company, 100% guarantee based on our initial work, we will have these sensors in the OR within one year. Wow. Um, we've already gotten, and it's 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 not the perfect data that I want um, in terms of the heart, you know, wired motion tracking data, but I've already worn the EEG sensor in the OR. I can already see the difference in my brain when I'm doing a procedure in a simulation versus when I'm doing it in a real case. So mm -hmm. the EEG sensor I've already worn, FDA- What's the difference you see? That's fascinating. What is it? Oh, it's level of engagement. So, so, so when you put it on a spectrogram, blue means like you're total Zen mode and meditating. Red means you're like totally focused and, and, and you know, 
spending some cognitive effort. And in a sim, there's more blue spaces um, and some red, you know, mostly when I'm actually explaining my assistant how to do this thing. Um, in the OR, a little bit of blue, lots of yellow. Um, and I never really, the first time I wore it, I never really knew how, how loud the OR is. So first in a sim, you've got one person who's assisting you in the OR, you got five people, there's the patient, there's the vitals, there's anesthesia machine. And I remember going from scrubbing, you could see on the spectrogram of my brainwave when I went from scrubbing outside to just walking into the OR and all this noise that you're processing. So your brain's already operating at this level anyway. And then when you're focused on anatomy, then that red spot. So that's a way of segmenting for AI. I'm already wearing that one. So now I just got to get the magnetic motion tracking um, or uh, miniaturized and we're, we're close. So very, very exciting. Um, so it's going to happen soon. There are other people that are doing cameras in the OR. There's a colleague of mine, Theodore Garantroff, who has cameras in the OR who are looking at OR efficiency. They're in, the can in Canada, in the UK. I, I'm sorry, in Canada. And I think he has hospitals in the UK that have already implemented this camera system that looks at workflow and OR communication, but doesn't do it at the individual level, kind of does it does the AI analysis of it and then ports, you know, OR statistics and things like that. So we're headed in that direction. It's happening. Um, the quality policy laws protect us and we're learning how to add this uh, within it, but there are policy laws. I believe it's article 42 um, and some of the quality improvement um, laws that protect hospitals and their ability to improve on their workflow and their efforts and it not be discoverable. So we're, we're going to ride those policies. We're going to add to it. We're going to keep it going. Got a lot of great people at the Institute of Surgical Excellence that are helping us fight this fight because we know this is the future. Oh man, there's so much more we can talk about, but we got to let you get going. We've, we're at the hour. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, part, um, two, part two in six months. Yeah, please do. That's yes. great. All right. As a matter of fact, if you agree to that, we're going to hold you to it because awesome. especially yeah. if some of the stuff's coming out in a year. Are you kidding? This yes. is amazing. Yeah. We'll okay. Fine. We'll do that. That makes me feel better. Right. Cool. Yeah. It's, um, it's so interesting. Um, coming through uh, surgical residency, the best compliment you could get was when a surgeon would say, you've got good hands. Yeah. And we never knew what that meant. But I had no idea said, what it well, meant. Well, I've got good hands. And now we're getting to a point where you're going to be able to show us what good hands mean. That is Fantastic. I can't begin to tell you how exciting that is. Okay. Yes. I'm excited that you all get it and that you would even let me have this conversation with you in public and like <laughs> tell the world what crazy, fun, cool things are coming to change the world of surgery. So I'm excited to have you guys as partners. That's awesome. Thanks, Carla. All right. The, to close off here, for those who can't wait under six months, Tell them some places they can go to learn more about your work, what you're up to, and uh, expand a little more. Well, just to get a visual, um, two things. Um, the study that we did in the Moscone Center, if you go to Google and search for Moscone Center Surgeon Wearables, KPIX did a news story on it and interviewed surgeons and showed the whole craziness of wearables and the whole nine yards and how they were thinking about it. It was just amazing. Um, the other story online is on our website on my, not on the business side, but on my research laboratory side, we the Techie Center, T-E-C-I, Technology Enabled Clinical Improvement Center. That website has another video that Stanford um, Medicine 
did when they captured the story of the wearables and, and some of my other colleagues speaking about it. So you could at least follow that, but we will have um, updates. Um, my company is called 10 Newtons. Um, our website is very much stealth right now because we're competing with some other people that are trying to steal our ideas. Yeah. Partner, partner, you're in Silicon you know, Valley. Partner, partner. I'm in Silicon <laughs> Valley. Oh my goodness. I'm like learning a fast pace, you know, like, okay, great. Stop talking. Loose lips sinks ships, young lady. Okay, 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 okay. But I'm just like wanting to get this across the finish line. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so our, our website on the company side is still stealth. Once we get our first installation, we're going to go live uh, and, and go from there. But between all, all right, the well, minus that one, we're going to put links to everything else you just mentioned. So awesome. Um, if you're driving right now somewhere, don't don't write it down. We'll we'll get it for you. Um, <laughs> Carla, thank you so much, and I'm holding you to it. We're going to bring you back because, uh, like I said, there's just I think there's only more things I didn't get to. So awesome, amazing, amazing, amazing stuff. But everyone, that is Dr. Carla Pugh at Stanford, and again, um, thanks for joining us, Carla. Everybody listening, wherever whenever you're listening to us, take care. We'll see you here next time. That's hey. it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com. <laughs>